safe space for you to expose to inner thoughts that you've never felt comfortable revealing in public. Whether it's on a stigmatized issue or any sort of out there ideas that may not necessarily have a place in everyday conversations. We're here today to bring them under the spotlight. We're today's hosts, I am Anita Lowe. And I'm Lillian. So if you're listening to this on the day it's published, it's supposed to be September 10th, which is Suicide Prevention Day. And we just wanted to do something special for our audience. So today we invited onto our show Dr. Hu, who's a Stanford professor who specializes in psychiatry, and she'll be offering some expert advice on, you know, how to deal with mental health issues as well as how to maintain healthy relationships with friends and family. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest of the day. Today, we're very honored to have invited a Stanford clinical professor that specializes in psychiatry. Hi, Dr. Hu, can you tell us about yourself and your work? Yeah, um, it was nice to meet you in the um, Stanford class for clinical summer internship. And uh, it's one of my favorite classes every year for um, high school and college students um, thinking about careers in medicine. And I'm a clinical professor of psychiatry. I'm one of the associate deans for academic affairs at Stanford University School of Medicine. Um, I've been at Stanford since 1998. And the reason that they asked me to teach the CSI class about psychiatry was because I have um, sort of a varied background and they thought it would be fun for students to hear about uh, what I do. And as I've given this talk over the years, um, I realized that just talking about what I do without talking about how I got here, it didn't make as much sense. So um, uh, I'll, I'll actually start a little bit by talking about what I do now, um, but then also about how it started. So I've been at Stanford since 1998. I um, started out for 20 years um, running the locked inpatient unit at Stanford, so what's called the acute inpatient unit. And it's where a lot of the patients with the most serious symptoms are. So people who have been um, feeling suicidal or tried to hurt themselves. And then a lot less often, but still it's important to, to treat people who have tried to hurt other people. And then often people with very psychotic symptoms, um, feeling paranoid and hearing voices. Um, and when I talk about how I, uh, how I started in psychiatry, you'll understand why I chose um, that population. And then um, while treating a lot of people with suicidal thoughts, um, including all different ages, um, including some students, Stanford students and so forth, but definitely not exclusively, there were a number of suicides in the community um, near Stanford and they were disproportionately Chinese American um, or, or Chinese from China um, students. And so the school asked me to talk to the parents and I started a, um, I started a theater group called Chi Pao. So that stands for Communication Health Interactives for Parents of Adolescents and Others. So the schools asked me to talk to the parents and um, the parents said, you know, don't uh, tell us what to do, show us. Because when uh, we got a group of 
uh, Asian American psychiatrists and psychologists to talk to the um, the parents, um, and we had a panel, and we said things like, you know, talk with your kids and so forth, and they were sort of like, we're trying, we want to, <laughs> it's not working, and that's how Chi Pao started, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later, um, and then. Uh, all this time I was seeing patients in the hospital, and I still do. Uh, during COVID, I've been seeing patients live in the hospital, um, and that's been important, but it's been stressful. And I see patients in clinic, but that's been on Zoom during COVID. Um, and while doing this, also then started to do this um, theater project, and that's actually gotten a lot of uh, uh, international um, acclaim and that's been really nice and we're trying to have more people um, do chi pao type um, activities and we'll talk more about that later um, and because chi pao got a lot of press then um, the producers at netflix uh, asked me to be one of the consultants on 13 reasons why which ended up being in, I think, 160 countries or something. And um, the biggest show of that year, um, actually, I'm trying to remember what year it was, 2018 or 2019. And um, at about the same time, so, so I was thinking about how as much as it's important to be able to save people, uh, kind of rescue them in the hospital, the hospital is sort of a safety net. And, um, but we also want to help people while they're on the balance beam so that they don't have to fall into the safety net. And I think a lot of the media things have been to try to do something about stigma and try to make it easier for people to get help. Um, maybe even if they've been told not to get help, maybe if they've been raised not to ask for help or to talk about these things. So, um, so let's see, there was also, a music program called Music Key West, where we went into the schools and um, professional classical musicians talked about bullying and tried to um, tried to decrease bullying in schools. Talk about upstander training and talk about what to do if you've been victimized and what to do if uh, you're witnessing it, um, and then a program called The Manic Monologues and talking about having less stigma around, you know, having a diagnosis, having having mania or bipolar, having depression, schizophrenia, hearing voices, for example, anxiety, all of these things, things that people were often ashamed to talk about. Um, so I, I'd love to talk about Manic Monologues some more. And then, um, uh, recently, also a Spanish language soap opera. Um, so the Spanish language soap operas are called telenovelas, and uh, this one is called Mariposa. And each episode deals with a particular um, diagnosis. So the first one talks about uh, alcohol and addiction, and the second one talks about depression, and the third one talks about um, psychosis and mania, hearing voices and bipolar. So the common theme to everything is to um, try to help people when they've been feeling particularly um, vulnerable and when they've needed help and to try to make it okay 
to ask for help. So um, we, we can talk more about some of those projects because uh, I'm, I'm very proud of all of them and I'm happy to talk about them. Um, but this is where I wanted to talk about how all of this started. And um, since this is a podcast, then I won't show my yearbook picture or, um, but I had a boyfriend in high school whose best friend um, was, I guess, I guess I'll use pseudonyms. Um, so his best friend, Scotty, um, they had known each other for a long time. And so he was sort of my frenemy because every time my boyfriend and I argued, he heard everything about it. And then he would turn around in chemistry class and just sort of grin at me and tell me that um, the prom wasn't that important or that I was being too high maintenance or things like that. Um, and so he was funny and he was smart and uh, he was, um, and he was always right as it turned out, um, but that made him kind of annoying. And we were all in the math team together. So we were, um, we were definitely nerds and college oriented um, when not everybody around us was. Um, I went to a school where there were, uh, actually, this is probably another topic, but you know, I went to a school that was uh, affluent, but not always very scholastic. And so, you know, there were a lot of that. So the nerds were sometimes picked on, but Ben and Scotty and I were math team and we were, we were happy with the things that we did. Um, at one point, so, so when we all went off to different colleges, Scotty went to an Ivy League school and got very good grades and got into one of the best medical schools in the United States. And somewhere during college, he had joined a fraternity and um, partied, used some substances. And somewhere around that time, he started to have voices and to get paranoid. And so he still got grades that were good enough to get into um, medical school. And as I said, one of the best medical schools in the country. And then he wasn't able to continue. And uh, he dropped out of medical school. He got a job in a, um, in a movie theater, the same one that he worked at in high school. But he wasn't able to keep that job because he was too strange. He, his face was too, um, I don't know what you want to call it. In psychiatry, they call it flat affect, so too blunted. And it, it, he was perfectly good at taking tickets, but um, it scared the moviegoers who just wanted to have a good time. Um, in other words, he, he looked what, what people would say, he looked crazy. And so um, when I was home for, from school, um, Ben would urge us all to get together. And when Scotty got the basketball, we tried to play basketball. And he would just take the basketball and keep walking off of the, um, he would just walk off the court. Or we, when we would say shoot, he would just shoot from wherever. And so someone who was, uh, smart enough to get into the best medical school in the country, was unable to play a simple pickup game of basketball. 
And the last time I saw him, he, we were in a restaurant and he saw uh, two women eating chicken and he started laughing like diabolically and really loudly. And he said, two women eating chicken, two women eating chicken. And so we had to leave the restaurant. You know, the women were upset. Um, we were upset. Um, and we said, that's not funny, you know, stop that. And, and he, he couldn't explain to us what was so funny, but he just kept laughing. And so after that, I, um, I told Ben that I didn't want to see Scotty anymore. I was ashamed to be around him. I was embarrassed. And Ben tried to tell me that, um, that the real Scotty was still in there somewhere. Um, we, we, had, we had had a lot of things in, in common and a lot of things that we'd done. We're, um, af after, after college and before med school, Ben and Scotty had gone to Paris and I went with my cousin and we ran into each other by complete accident because we liked the same things, right? So he, we, we used the same guidebooks and ended up at the same hotel. And, and so when he got sick, then I would try to say, you know, Scotty, do you remember that, that waiter in Paris? Do you remember, you know, do you remember complaining about being overcharged? Do you, you know, there were like funny stories, but he wouldn't laugh. So he would laugh at things that weren't funny and he didn't seem to remember anything that was funny. So, um, so when Ben said that he was still in there somewhere, I didn't believe him. It, it seemed like, it seemed like the real Scotty had just been, you know, taken away, like kidnapped by space aliens or something. It, it just seemed like he was gone. And so I didn't see him again after that. I think Ben still got together with him, but I heard later that really nobody else did. And so um, a while later, I, I heard that he died by suicide. And um, this was quite a few years ago. So there was a whole class of medications that weren't available at the time that were invented after he died. And it's like, I have a friend who died of AIDS, of HIV also, where I just sort of felt like if he could have held on a little bit longer, like a year or two longer, then he would have been fine. Like there's there's people now with AIDS, HIV, who live a long time and, and have, you know, have productive lives and do the things they want to do. And I think, I think Scotty could have done that. And um, uh, ben went into psychology. I went into psychiatry. Another person in our friend group went into psychiatry specifically studying schizophrenia, um, which is what Scotty had. He, he heard voices and he um, couldn't tell what was real from what wasn't real. Scotty wanted to be a doctor. He was studying to be a doctor and he never got to do that. So I think a lot of us who went into medicine um, wanted to do um, 
wanted to do right by him, wanted to do what he would have done if he could have. So um, I, I would definitely say that, that I think of him a lot. Um, definitely every time I see someone with schizophrenia, quite possibly every day, and then often things like hearing about the medical school that he started at or the college he went to or random things remind me of him. Um, he, had, he had very pretty eyes um, and, and he had a mouthful of braces. So a lot of times I'll see somebody with, with a big smile full of braces um, and, and that, you know, he was, he was a good friend. He was a good friend to Ben and a, and a frenemy to me. And and I think I think I I wish that I had given him more credit for what he was going through and that he he didn't turn into a different person. He was struggling for his original self to be out and I think some of the older ideas about schizophrenia were harmful and wrong. Um, even I think a lot of the times when people use phrases like, you know, crazy and so forth, they act as though it's a choice or as though somebody, you know, was, was trying to be crazy, you know, woke up in the morning and, you know, and I've, I've had patients, families, come into my office and, and yell at the patient, you know, TV not talking to you, radio not talking to you, stop that. And um, the, I think one of the cruel things about um, mental illnesses is that um, so much of who we are is our behavior. And so when people's behavior changes, um, other people don't understand. Other people are mean to them in a way that they wouldn't, um, I don't, I don't think they would dream of telling somebody, you know, with a broken leg, you know, it's like, stop that, <laughs> you know. Um, and yet, when it comes to a mental illness, um, people all the time say judgmental things, um, treat them badly, act as though they should just stop doing it. Um, one of the exercises that I do um, with residents and medical students is to do something where we, um, where one of them is like the voice and one of them is an interviewer and then the person hearing the voice is the, um, either a date or someone getting interviewed. And it's just sort of like, just try to get through 10 minutes, five minutes with these voices in your head. And in this case, you know, in the, in the case of somebody with schizophrenia, they feel like um, they feel like it's the devil or they feel like it's, you know, spirits. And, um, and, but, but even like knowing that your classmate is like, you know, whispering voices in your ears, um, they can't get through a date or an interview. They can't, you know, I tell them just to get through um, 
10 minutes or five minutes. Uh, usually they like sweat straight through their shirts and, um, and, and they'll like try to cover up their ears and so forth. And um, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to know what they're going through, but um, I think we need to at least start by knowing that it isn't something they chose and it isn't something that they deserved. Well, first of all, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your personal experience. So I think there's just still so much stigma surrounding mental health. And especially like from our standpoint, uh, the reason why we started the podcast was also because so many people around us have been going through similar problems, you know, like self-harm, um, suicidal thoughts, and just, you know, a lot of problems surrounding teens. And a lot of times people around them that they trust don't treat it as an actual problem. And that is what actually let it become worse. And we, we think that if uh, at the beginning of, you know, them experiencing these thoughts that we could have given them more support and more, you know, intervention, then um, things would, would have gone much better. So what do you think could be the first steps that parents or individuals like us can take to promote mental well-being and foster, you know, healthier relationships within families? Yeah. Um, it's, it's really, a lot of it is about communication and realizing that there's more than one factor to work on and um and that improving communication is is good there's you know it's not easy but it's it's very worthwhile i think that um in in a lot of cultures including the way that i was raised um a lot of things were about being good being smart being a certain way and um, what psychologists called fixed versus growth mindset so it's sort of like you got good grades and you therefore you are smart or you know you you did this or therefore you're talented and I think when it comes to communication the fixed mindset makes it harder to uh, communicate because it's sort of like oh you know um, you want me to do this differently I'm a bad mother you know, um, I, I, you were hurt by my, by my feelings, I'm bad, or you hurt my feelings, you're bad. And so the idea of everyone um, working on communicating better and that it's not about somebody's fault, um, I think that's an important thing that we want to get across. And that a lot of times our first impulse um, doesn't make us a bad person, but we could probably use different strategies. If the first impulse isn't working, then let's try something else. And so we try to, we don't want the parents to feel like they're um, demonized or, um, I remember, uh, you know, when, when my brothers and I tried to tell my, my mother, you know, sort of like, you know, when, when you're really picky about our, um, the people we date and it's sort of like and no one's good enough for you and she's like that's right no one is good enough for for my children and it's like well then we end up with no one and then she sort of paused for a second and then she said so i'm a monster it's like no no <laughs> but but you know being a little flexible about um who we date and that the next person you meet might not be the person that we marry and that's okay um you know, um, but, but, 
you know, it was, and she wasn't a bad person for having this kind of feeling wounded. But I think a lot of what we're trying to work on with the parents is to be sort of like, okay, that didn't work the way you wanted it to. And it's not his fault and it's not your fault. It's something that you can work on together. And so um, at least one of the skits we call, um, actually the shortest skit that we often start with just to, um, just to show the parents how it goes, we do a version 1.0 and a version 2.0, right? So in the first version, it's how it's really happened. And then in version 2.0, it's, it's how we're suggesting a different way of doing it. So the shortest skit is called You Should Have Studied. And it's based on an actual thing where the teenager, you know, comes down for breakfast, says, says, oh, I'm so stressed out. And the mom says, what happened? And it's like, I have a math test today and I didn't study. And then mom says, of course, you should have studied. And so um, the, the teen picks up the backpack without eating breakfast, runs out the door, slams the door. Um, and now the mom is like, like, what? What did I do wrong? He should have studied. What's, what's the problem? And, um, and then we suggest some different things. We, um, between version 1.0 and version 2.0, we ask the parents uh, what they think went well or didn't go well. And it includes um, things, you know, so in the, in the case of we should have studied, the mom, and I usually play the mom, um, you know, the mom says, I'm his mother, you know, that's my job. Why, you know, I, you mean I shouldn't say he should study? He should study, that's obvious. And then the moderator says, well, you know, he couldn't study right then, right? So in terms of timing, that bit of advice might be better at another time. And so in version 2.0, when he says, I should have studied, it's like, oh no, what happened? And then, um, and, and it's important when we do these skits that it always includes, it's not perfect. You know, we don't want the parents or the children to feel like they need to have brain transplants, right? Because that's not helpful. It's not going to happen. It's not helpful. So, so when the mother says, you know, what happened? Then the teen might say, you'd know if you were paying attention or, you know, or he might be like, I don't know. Um, and then she's like, oh, is there anything I can do to help? He's like, can you make me go back in time? And then she said, you know, I'd like that too sometimes. So she's trying, you know, he's frustrated. He's angry. He's angry at himself as much as anyone. It doesn't help for her to add to that. So at that point, and also if she just feels attacked, like, fine, I, you know, I tried to help. Um, but if, if he says, you know, I don't know, I wish I could go back in time. And she says, yeah, I feel like that too sometimes. And then, you know, she says, here, have some, have some breakfast. You know, you'll have, you'll have protein. It'll, it'll help you. And then, um, and then instead of saying, oh, you'll do fine, which he probably wouldn't feel that supported by, she might, if she wants to say, you know, I remember one time where um, you were sure you were doomed and it wasn't quite as bad as you thought. Um, and, you know, so something like that. Or, or not, or she can say like, well, um, I hope it goes okay for you. I look forward to hearing about it when you get back. And that's also important because if it feels like, you know, if you fail the test, you're bad, don't show your face around here, then of course the teen feels, um, feels terrible, feels worthless. But 
she's sort of like, I, I hope it, I hope it's not so bad. So this is all in the space of just, you know, the version 1.0, the version 2.0. Each one takes, you know, like a minute and a half. Um, and then we have a lot of skits. We have one called Unsuitable Boy. Um, we have, um, gosh, we have one called Awkward Hug, because including my own, um, we don't do a lot of hugging. And for the kids who, um, for the kids who grew up in the U.S. and they see their friends being hugged, and I remember um, one of my patients who was Asian saying, "You know, white people say I love you all the time. They say I love you when you walk out the door. They say I love you when you come back. Like who does that?" And it's sort of like, "Well, that's not what we're accustomed to." But do you envy it a little bit? You know, and that's um, that's I think. There can be a mismatch between what the teen is experiencing at home with the parents and what they're seeing around them, either with friends or in media. Yeah, I think theater or arts in general is just such a good platform to foster empathy. And since like we live in Shanghai and most of our listener base is probably in China, I think your work with Chipao can definitely resonate with a lot of us, since most of us are also considering going to the U.S. for college. But I think another really interesting work that you mentioned previously that resulted from Chipao was Thirteen Reasons Why, and many of our listeners are teenagers who have probably watched Thirteen Reasons Why before. So we were also wondering what it was like. Like, what was your experience working on Thirteen Reasons Why? Yeah, it was really interesting because when they first contacted me, I was I was kind of like, you know, you don't was like really you want to talk to me? I, um, you know, you you should talk to some of my colleagues. As a matter of fact, I tried to refer them to some of my colleagues because because I was sort of like I I don't know anything about Hollywood. I don't know anything about about anything. But they they said you know they liked my work with Chipao. Um, they liked the idea of being sympathetic to everyone that's involved. So it's not telling the teenagers that their parents are idiots, or telling the parents that the teenagers are idiots, or telling them both that the teachers are idiots, or anything like that. It's it's, and and I think the idea of Thirteen Reasons Why was to take something as as awful and and sometimes unspeakable as suicide and be um and and have a conversation and have something where people who have thought about suicide um and people who uh like me have survived the death of someone a friend or family member um people who um people who feel like they don't know what to do when somebody says says that they're um, depressed. Um, all, of, all of these, oh, and, and guilty, you know. I felt very guilty when Scotty died. Um, and so being able to present all of these different viewpoints uh, in a way that was sympathetic, and most of all, in a way that would be helpful, where people would know that you really should get help that that dying takes away all the options and that um i think one very important message is that um if someone's in trouble 
um, getting them help isn't getting them in trouble, it's getting them out of trouble. And, and this is something that I have experienced a lot in my work with patients. Um, if, a, if a roommate or friend or family member, um, you know, makes a call that brings someone to the hospital, um, a lot of times the, the person who got brought to the hospital is furious. Um, and and that's that's often enough to prevent someone from um, acting on their best instincts and calling for help. They're worried about getting somebody into trouble, and um, and you know, these days I'd rather somebody be angry at me than to feel like I could have helped and I didn't. Um, and I, I think uh, thirteen reasons why included. A lot of people involved. Um, there were other mental health professionals that were um, that gave advice. Um, the author of the book, which had been uh, written ten years before and was a bestseller, um, you know, was involved. And then all these writers. And um, I met with the uh, with the actors before filming, and they asked questions. Um, you know, they were just a year or two older than the characters they were playing. And so they had heard a lot of the same things about, you know, um, isn't, isn't suicide this or isn't suicide that? And, um, and we talked about some of the very difficult scenes. Um, there's, um, there's sexual assault um, and sort of talking about you know, why, why would somebody seem like they weren't fighting back? Why would somebody, you know, the, some of the choices that people make in a given moment during, um, in the story are ones that don't always make sense to somebody who's in, not in that situation and probably don't make sense to the person uh, later, but they make, they make a choice at the time that doesn't make sense. And interestingly, you know, the the show started before a lot of the um, before the Me Too movement was as widespread. Um, and so a lot of things that um, were hard to talk about in the show and hard to um, face. Um, since then, more people have talked about them, and there's been some momentum. I think a lot of things that, um, a lot of things in the news that originally people wouldn't believe, and certainly the show wasn't the only part of that conversation. Um, and then I think an important thing about the show was that so many previous depictions of death by suicide um, were sort of romanticized, and it was really important to not like, I don't know how many of these shows you guys will remember, but um, Thelma and Louise, the, the two best friends, drive off the edge of the Grand Canyon in a red convertible after taking a selfie. And they're like, you know, friends forever. And then they drive off the cliff. They're sort of like, and, you know, I remember thinking, well, that's not helpful. Um, there's an Indian movie called Padmavati where um, the, the queen rather than being captured by 
the um, by the men from the other group walks into the fire with all of her followers and it's depicted as this you know grand uh, gesture and sacrifice um, and it you know I mean in Indian history, she may not have had many choices, but the way they depicted it with sort of this golden light and and her hair blowing back and so forth, um, I just thought that's, you know, I, I felt like that was romanticizing it. Oh, speaking of ro romanticizing things, Romeo and Juliet, right? These two incredibly attractive people are sort of like, if you really love me, you would die for me. And then, and then, um, depending on on how it's depicted at least in one of the movie versions it's sort of like oh afterwards the capulets and the montagues got together because because the the kids made the sacrifice and it's sort of like well maybe they could have like eloped and had a couple of grandkids and the capulets and the montagues would have gotten together you know like like it it the the idea that it's some sort of noble sacrifice i thought you know and who am i to criticize shakespeare but you know it's um it it romanticizes it um i could go on and on there's uh black swan did you see that with natalie portman the the blood sort of spreads out on her tutu in the shape of a flower and you know she she doesn't seem to be in any pain and as her friends gather around her she there's this close up of her face and she says it was perfect and it was sort of like like no <laughs> you know um so, so it was important to have a conversation um, about suicide and about preventing suicide. And then I think it was important to not make it seem like, um, you know, beautiful, sexy, noble, et cetera. Um, so, so that, that was, I, I had no idea that the show would be as popular as it was. And so, um, yeah, the the I was only involved in the uh, first season. The subsequent seasons was uh, Christine Moutier um, from uh, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. So I have to do a shout out to her in the podcast. And then because this is a podcast in Shanghai, Christine Moutier is also Asian. Her her name is Christine Yu Moutier. So so Chinese American. Um, Yay. Yeah. Yay. Yay. For those of you on the podcast who just hear us audio, we're all like just raised. Yay. Yay. Um, so I don't know if you have other questions about that, but it, it was a really, um, it was a, it was a really interesting experience. Not always easy. You know, the show had some controversy. Um, and, um, I remember people sort of wanting us to go back in time and a colleague said, it shouldn't be 13 reasons why. There's probably hundreds of reasons why people, you know, want to die. And it's like, okay. <laughs> um, or people saying, well, you know, um, statistically speaking, more, more young men than women die by suicide. Um, and, and it was sort of like, yeah, but this isn't the story of everyone who's died by suicide it's the story of and it's it's fiction of course it's based on a story but it's sort of like the the stresses that 
that teenagers have can include these things and um and we want to put a message out that there are ways of doing things differently that might help and it's not just one factor i guess yeah maybe 13 is too simple but but um a lot of times in media um it's portrayed as though you know x happened then y like you know they had no choice or you know this this will make the bullies sorry or something like that and i think it was important both for um, people who have thought about suicide and also for people um people you know for their loved ones people who have survived the suicide of someone that they love um, to know that it's not just one factor and so perhaps one thing wouldn't be everything but all of the things that add up that help um, can be helpful okay so um from the standpoint of a friend or a family member um what would you suggest you know um for example like if, if a close friend of mine is experiencing diverse thoughts or suicidal thoughts what do you think is the most um, appropriate thing to do it's it's helpful to listen and to listen without judgment and um a lot of times just sort of knowing that somebody um, out there knows that that they're in pain and suffering um, is helpful and then letting them know that that they should get help and that um, it wouldn't be helpful for them to die. Um, and, and there's, it's, it's a lot to ask um, a friend to be everything for them. So um, you should be a friend, um, but you're not a substitute for everything. So listening, encouraging them to get help, um, if it really seems like things are imminent, then you might be the one to um to call for help um and that it's it's really much better to have them mad at you for um a weekend or or there or a couple of weeks than than for them to die um and and some of some of it is is to um to to listen without judging um a lot of times people feel bad for feeling bad if that makes sense so um you know i i had a patient who said you know i can't believe that i feel this bad for after a breakup like i shouldn't you know a guy shouldn't affect me this much and I said, I don't know about should. And, you know, it's sort of like it, um, when you love someone and it seems like they don't love you anymore, it is upsetting. I think it is upsetting. And, um, and so that, that felt helpful to her. Um, her, her parents, and this is, this is someone who is Chinese American, um, you know, her, her dad was sort of like, well, if it hurts so much when you when when you break up with someone, maybe you shouldn't date. It's like okay, that's not so helpful. Um, but but to sort of listen and and be sort of like yeah, um, 
and and then you know if if the person who just broke up is like is like you know well i deserved it or things like that to sort of hear them out and then gently let them know that you're there for them um mm -hmm. and and also that if it's beyond what you're able to do it's like i will always be your friend i will always you know do whatever helps you and i'm worried and i really think this is something where you should see somebody or go to the hospital or whatever level of um and and it might be it might be their parent if their parent has been not that helpful it might be your parent it might be um an aunt or uncle or teacher or something that can help them get help um so you can yeah you can you can help get them out of trouble because dying is the worst kind of trouble there is <laughs> right and so um something where they take some time off from school where they you know reevaluate something um that might not be the worst thing in the world so even even patients remember i said i, I ran the lock unit at stanford for for 20 years um, I had patients who were pretty mad at me as the doctor for for a while, um, and then later on came back and said, "Thank you, you know, thank you for saving my life." And who were mad at their friends and said to their friends later, "Thank you for saving my life." But like right in the moment, you know, would like argue and just like, "Okay, so I said I wanted to die. Shouldn't that be my right? Should I be able, you know, shouldn't I be able to?" And I was like, "Well, you know." If, if you take your own life, it won't be your life anymore. It just, it won't be anybody's. So staying alive a little bit longer to see if you can get through this, this difficulty. And we're not saying the difficulty is not happening. We're saying that there, there's probably going to be a time when you can look back on this as something that was painful, but that you got through. Mm -hmm. So another question I had is like, um, a lot of times as friends, like we try to help, but you know, on many occasions we don't end up actually helping a person. And then in this occasion, we feel really powerless to help. So like, would you have any suggestions for friends to be dealing with these kind of thoughts? And you know, a, a big emotion is guilt, not being able to do anything while your friend is going through a lot. You know, how do we personally deal with those kind of emotions? Um, realize that there's often degrees of helping and that there's, um, there, it's, it's not like, um, I was successful and I prevented them from ever hurting themselves, um, or, you know, or I, I made it worse, you know, that, that there's often ways that you can help in, in little ways. Um, you know, when, when I was um, in undergrad and, and medical school, I was often the designated driver um, so that friends, and you know, I didn't necessarily approve of what they were doing, but it's sort of like, okay, I'm gonna get them safely home and, um, and you know, not pass out somewhere. Um, and so I, I think that was good. Um, uh you do have limits on what you're able to do um 
in in the manic monologues um i wrote one of the skits and it's called bipolar boyfriend and that was i think one of the lessons there was um i think the line that i use in it is like somewhere between between being somebody's forever soulmate and never speaking to them again um i could have been his friend there's something in between and um and also in in bipolar boyfriend i talk about how i thought that he was torturing me and but what was actually happening was there was an illness that was torturing both of us and so the um a, a friend who you know was lovely to be around and is now very difficult if if it feels like they're just attacking you then you know of course you're going to want to retreat but if um if you realize that the illness is obscuring who they really are then it doesn't necessarily mean you should take everything that you that they dish out though by the way so helping as best as you can help is good but if they're if they're endangering your health too then you know don't do that um so in bipolar boyfriend which again was something so so this was different than than the um than my friend from high school who died during medical school this was bipolar boyfriend was someone that i dated in medical school um and he you know it was difficult to be around him and continuing to be his girlfriend was not possible but i think um when i you know wouldn't talk to him ever again that was also not helpful and i felt very guilty for that so being a friend can often mean little incremental things um and it's it's often the sum of different things and if something doesn't go the way that you wanted to to cut yourself some slack give yourself some credit for for trying and then not giving up so not giving up might mean taking some time um and you know if if the person who you've had difficulty helping is not in a place to accept your help right now um you know you can let them know that you're their friend but that um you know you're gonna if if they talk to you this way or if they treat you this way that you're gonna come back a, a little later and that you'll always be their friend but that you need to come back a little later and then at that point get get professional help for them i think our next question kind of builds on to the previous question but from another standpoint like if we are personally the ones experiencing these adverse thoughts like how do we approach and communicate with those around us especially since we live in an environment where mental health is largely considered to be a stigmatized topic and people who usually like summon the courage to speak up get dismissed as just being stressful so i was wondering like how we can approach and communicate with those around us yeah it's a big question and there's probably different strategies at different times and you know so there's no one answer um uh being able to talk to someone is very important so um you know if if you are able to get professional help that's I think something that I recommend it's not always easy for you to do that 
um, and um, you might, if it's hard to talk to a parent, um, a lot of people start first by talking to someone, um, someone that's close to you, but but not a parent. Um, so when I was growing up, I found it easier sometimes to talk to my aunt than my mom. Um, you know, some people find it a lot easier to talk to a sibling, um, and a lot of people find it uh, easier to talk to a friend. Um, and so, you know, when when it comes to something that's where you're thinking about hurting yourself, then that's that's the time to really prioritize. You know, I'm um, I'm not going to be okay if I don't get some help right away, and then to to prioritize. Um, Prioritize the life or death things is really life or death. Um, so um, the thing that I said about not feeling bad for feeling bad, I think it's important to give yourself um, give yourself permission for feeling pain. Um, and this is, by the way, a part of our culture. Um, right after the shootings in Atlanta, um, where Asian women were particularly targeted, um, I remember getting, you know, a Chinese language newspaper um, on, like, so, so on the driveway where I driveways where I live, only the Asian people got gets this newspaper, um, and it's partly in Chinese and it's partly in English, um, but I remember it said, you know above all have discipline don't get angry you know um anger will back up the chi in your liver and cause high blood pressure and i was like what um so so you're not a bad person if you are vulnerable to pain you're not weak um pain actually protects us it, it helps us know that there's something wrong so if if something bad happened, if nothing bad happened, but you'd feel depressed and and this is something where your your body chemistry is telling you that um, or or if if bad things have happened to to sort of say, um, to be able to change the situation, I have to get help. Um, what's difficult about depression is often that you don't necessarily realize, you know if 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 I have a rash on my arm, I can point to my arm and say, I have a rash, and then I can get help for it. But I think what's difficult about depression is that it feels like the world is a bad place, or it feels like I'm a bad person. And you don't necessarily realize that this is something that you can get help for. Um, and that a lot of the issues that are very painful right now can get better. And doesn't mean that the that the pain is imaginary, but it does mean that there are things that that will get better and you want to be around for when things get better um i think there's a saying like living well is the best revenge so if if you've been hurt um you know going forward and then having um having things go well for you and then paying it forward and being able to help other people you know that's something that's worth that's worth being around for helping um if you've suffered to be able to go forward and help somebody else's suffering um that's worth a lot 
I think understanding a person or like a patient's narrative is so important to really understand what they're going through. And yeah. just out of curiosity, I was wondering if manic monologue started out started out with like similar with the similar intent and in general what inspired you and your team to create this. So it was created by um, Zachary Burton and Elisa Hoffmeister, um, who were uh, both Stanford students at the time. Um, uh, Elisa was uh, pre-med, now she's in medical school, and Zach Burton uh, was in geology and now he has a PhD, so now he's Dr. Zach Burton. And um, Zach has uh, bipolar. Um, he got manic, he got hospitalized, Elisa was his girlfriend, and um, and when they tried to read about the condition, they just didn't feel hopeful. They they wanted narratives from the person experiencing it, um, or or the person who loves them. Um, but they wanted other people to hear about these experiences and know that they got through them. And so uh, Zach, in his monologue, talks about feeling suicidal and about uh, it was calling his mother right before he thought he was going to die she she helped him get help and um and other people talk about when they felt suicidal um and then you know we wanted we wanted there to be the option for people who wrote their stories to act in them or not and so in the initial stanford production and some of the others since Zach plays himself um, and uh, I played myself as the as the suffering girlfriend of the bipolar boyfriend um, in the Stanford production and UCLA production um, and then uh, it went to Princeton uh, McCarter Theater and they did a production with um, Broadway and off-Broadway actors, and it won, I'm sorry, it was nominated for the Drama League Award, so the first in its 85-year history to have a category for Best Digital Theater, and the first time they expanded it to the whole country and not just Broadway, off-Broadway, New York. So the Drama League Awards, um, so I, I spoke too soon, I said, I said it won. It's been nominated for, and it's up against some very good competition, so, you know, of course I hope I hope it wins, but um, you know it's an honor to be nominated, um, and and it's all true stories. It's all things as they happened to people. So um, we'll be performing it at Mayo Clinic um, on Zoom, or recorded. Um, uh, a number of I think it was performed in Iowa and at Prince George's College. Um, some very good productions. Um, and often performed entirely by young people. So um, uh, I, I was, I think, a founding advisor, but not the creator. But I'm very proud of the creators. It's a wonderful team of people. When are they, when are they announcing the winners? Like, we're going to cheer for you guys? Thank you. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, um, I, I think I got the Broadway World app. But it's not like it, it says things every day or something. So um, it's always a complete surprise to me. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Zach and Elisa's in medical school now, so she's fairly busy. But Zach keeps me up to date on 
when another place is is performing it and um and i always look forward to seeing how each each thing is portrayed um i i think when i first wrote it about my experience um the the skit called bipolar boyfriend i thought i was just um stupid or naive or something it's sort of like how could i not figure out something was up why did i you know um why didn't i why didn't i do it differently you know i i thought either i'm the worst girlfriend ever for breaking up with him when he was ill or um or i'm you know the most gullible person ever for you know for putting up with very difficult behaviors for so long and um and it was it was neat when i performed it and uh, at the ucla production um it, it it seemed like the whole first row of women came up and they and they like patted me it's like you did the best you could and you know and you know it was nice because it i didn't ask all of their stories but it seemed like at least some of them had gone through something very similar um and you know i i think if, if there's one thing that maybe ties all of this together is that you're not alone and that if you've if you've thought about dying you're not alone you're not a bad person for having thought of it but you really should get help because it's a lot for one person to deal with so you're not alone get get help and then if you're um if you've experienced any of these things that you can get help look at you guys you guys are doing a podcast and people are you know and we're talking from the other side of the world and you know we're sharing something that's that's meaningful and we're communicating and understanding each other that's that's possible in so many ways for everybody yeah we really appreciate you for coming to our podcast today that's we basically asked all the questions that we wanted to ask you already and we just want to thank you again for thank sharing you your so stories much. for sharing your expertise and everything you've done here we really appreciate it you're so welcome and thank you <laughs> <laughs>